Good afternoon. This is Milton Rosenberg. Welcome to the program. And we've put together rather quickly because of something that fell through, a discussion of a book that has fascinated me since I've begun looking at it, and with an author who has visited us before uh, in earlier, uh, discussing earlier works of his. This is Philip Jenkins, who is professor, essentially, of religious history, whatever the official title is, uh, both at Baylor University and at the um, Pennsylvania State University, and whose newest book is titled The Many Faces of Christ. Subtitle, The Thousand-Year Story of the Survival and Influence of the Lost Gospels. It turns out then, Philip, that the Lost Gospels were never really all that lost, apparently. Yeah, that's right. That's, uh, that's a very common uh, idea. There's a, a standard idea that I've, I've described as a myth, which is that around about the year maybe 400, uh, the uh, official churches uh, drove these old Gospels out of business, and they burned them and uh, buried them, and uh, they vanished until modern times. What I'm trying to show is that uh, those ancient Gospels actually you know, carried on being read in different parts of the world, carried on being used. And in fact, uh, some of them had as much of an impact on the way Christians acted as uh, uh, as the canonical, the official gospel. So I, I, I think I'm arguing something a little bit uh, surprising there. Very surprising to me, though I've certainly seen books in the past which have suddenly rather breathlessly reported on new, newly discovered lost gospels. Elaine Pagels, for example, has done that with the Gnostic Gospels, and others have done it with uh, the Gospel of Judas, and so on. Uh, that's kind of a, uh, a garden industry in religious scholarship, at least as presented to the lay world. But apparently, many of these Gospels have been around for a long, long time. I found it fascinating that you make reference to a book that I read many years ago, uh, the one by Robert Graves, um, which um, is uh, titled King Jesus. Yep. Uh, and you suggest that, and he wrote that, um, I'm not sure what the dates are, but is it right after World War II or even earlier? It's, uh, it appeared in 1946. 46. So, yeah, so it uh, came out uh, before the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. Yes. And round about the time of this famous find of Gnostic Gospels at uh, Nag Hammadi. Uh, and also we have even earlier works which seem to draw upon the, some of those same gospel, non-canonical stories of Jesus. I have in mind particularly George Moore's book, The Brook Kerith. I'm sure you know that one. Yes. uh, That goes back to 1916 or thereabouts. Right, and uh, that book from 1916, Robert Graves from 1946, uh, they describe a very, you know, daring idea of an alternative Jesus uh, in the book Kirith. Uh, Jesus survives the crucifixion and he ends his life being disgusted by the ideas of St. Paul, and he uh, joins a, a group of missionary Buddhists evangelizing the Judean countryside, which is a fairly uh, extreme idea that uh, goes beyond Dan Brown. Um, King Jesus uh, reveals all these ideas that we've come to think of uh, as recent discoveries, but uh, Graves knew them all in 1946. And um, it it very much gets to the point I'm trying to make that a lot of these Gospels, or at least their ideas, um, have been around a long time and in uh, in many cases just never went away. Um, I I turn, for instance, to some of these Gospels that uh, uh, supposedly vanished about the year 400, but then I find somebody around about uh, 1050 or 1100 
using the same gospel. So obviously it um, it hasn't gone too far. Uh, and th- th- there's a simple reason for much of this, which is uh, when people talk about gospels vanishing or texts vanishing, they're just looking at Europe or Western Europe. But the Christian world for many years is a much, much larger venture. Uh, there are many Christians in Asia, Central Asia, in Africa, in Ethiopia. And all these people have got their, their different Bibles, their different collections of Gospels. And the fact it's vanished in one place doesn't mean that it's vanished everywhere. And you suggest that essentially they're lost in the West, and there may be hundreds and hundreds of so-called lost Gospels, that they are, were lost in the West essentially through the insistence of Martin Luther and his many followers, that Protestantism, as it came on, um, followed the the Lutheran command that you draw religion only from Scripture. Nulla nulla scriptura, is that the way that goes? Sola scriptura. Or sola scriptura. Uh, Scripture alone. Scripture alone. Scripture alone. So so the repression of all these other Gospels really begins uh, in, say, the 16th century rather than in the 4th. Right. Uh, and w- with Luther, it, by that point, it's not even a case of um, suppressing them. It's a, a, a case of driving them out of fashion. Yeah. So they come to be really, you know, old fashioned. Nobody needs all those superstitious old books. Just, you know, put them in the attic, burn them. Um, but that's when they leave the, uh, the, uh, the churches or many churches. And uh, uh, even then, you know, some of the texts, I'm sure many of the people listening to this program will belong to uh, uh, Orthodox Christian churches. And they never do away with a lot of these alternative Gospels, like some of the ones about the Virgin Mary, for example. So when something's lost in one area, it it, it doesn't mean it's lost altogether. And that, that's basically the uh, core theme of what I'm talking about. And what, of course, that leads you to is the recognition, and you develop this uh, with great, uh, uh, great clarity in the new book, The Many Faces of Christ, is that just as you've got different stories of Christ, and the gospel is always the story of the birth and the career and the death and the afterlife, so to speak, of Jesus. Um, and that's more than what we've got in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but in hundreds and hundreds of other gospels. And they give you really a basis for seeing the existence and the flourishing nature of other forms of Christianity, uh, forms of Christianity that may now be regarded, at least in the Roman view, the Roman Catholic view, as heretical. Uh, There are not merely lost Gospels, but in in essence, would you agree, lost Christianities? Uh, They certainly are. um, But once again, they they aren't lost at one moment, say, around about the year 400. Uh, They they carry on all through the the Middle Ages. And uh, some of them would last, you know, until fairly, uh, fairly recent times. And if they don't do it in Europe, then they do it in Asia, they do it in China, and you get the sense of this very uh, very globalized world. But you do suggest as well that even in Europe they survive, <clears throat> if not in formal uh, sacramental material, they survive in stories that people tell one another and in art. Much of the religious art of the Renaissance, you say, is really full of references to stories that exist in those supposedly lost Gospels. One of the great examples I, um, I talk about is uh, a text which is sometimes called the Protoevangelium, and what that means is like the first gospel. 
and that's a gospel that tells about the uh, childhood and the birth of the, uh, uh, the Virgin Mary. Um, and that gospel is so early, it's probably composed no later than the year 160, which means it's actually written before virtually all those famous Gnostic Gospels. It's a truly ancient one. And far from being lost, uh, all the way through the Middle Ages, it shapes the way people uh, practice Christianity, uh, it, it, uh, how they do their stained glass, how they uh, paint religious paintings. And if you walk into any church in the Middle Ages, the first thing you'll probably see will be images taken from this, uh, this so-called first gospel. Um, and some of these images uh, actually end up in the um, in the mainstream. Uh, if you've ever seen like a Christmas uh, scene and you have the ox and the ass in the stable, well, those animals are from the Proto-Evangelium. If you've ever seen a picture of um, Mary marrying Joseph, and Joseph is this very, very old guy, uh, then that idea of a much older husband, that's from the Proto-Evangelium. So much of popular Christian art is taken from a, right, what would you call it, a non-lost gospel uh, that carries on being very happily read up until the uh, certainly the 16th century by, uh, uh, by virtually all Catholics. I want to do a little experiment right now, if uh, you will agree to it. I want to um, play simply a recording in English uh, of the Nicene Creed, which is, after all, an announcement of the basic, uh, the basic devotional content of at least Roman Catholicism, and then ask you as you listen to it to think about ways in which any of the many different lost Gospels that you've been studying, ways in which they might differ from what we have affirmed here as the essential Christian creed. Here is that reading. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men, and for our salvation, came down from heaven, and was incarnate by the Holy Ghost of the Virgin Mary, and was made man. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate, and suffered, and was buried, and the third day he rose again, according to the Scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and sitteth on the right hand of the Father. From thence he shall come again, with glory, to judge the quick and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end." and in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and Giver of life, who proceedeth from the Father, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spake by the prophets. In one holy Catholic and apostolic church, we acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. There we have it. Of course, it's very well known and it's recited routinely. Uh, what what uh, amendment or emendation or variation on all of that story would you get from some of the other supposedly non-canonical Gospels? You, you know, it's interesting you, uh, you play that. I could almost uh, take that 
and break that down. And that could be the chapters of the book in yes. terms of the way that they vary. But let me give you an example. One thing they stress there is God created heaven and earth. And well, you know, that, that's uh, everything visible and invisible. And that seems pretty obvious. But all through uh, you know, Christian history up to about 1600, there are very powerful heretical groups who don't believe that. They believe there's one great God who creates heaven. There is an evil, inferior God who creates and rules earth. And uh, Jesus is sent by the great God to liberate human beings from that lower, inferior, material God. And in uh, all the way through the uh, the Middle Ages, there are gospels circulating that portray that message, and they try to explain how uh, Satan creates the uh, creates the material world. Some of these texts, uh, if you actually possess them in the Middle Ages, then you've earned an instant uh, death sentence. Um, but but they carry on all through the Middle Ages. How does it th- how does it then happen though that uh, Genesis? in the version we've got in the Western Bible, but the Western tradition of the Hebrew Bible, of the Old Testament, begins with, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the, the heavens and the earth. Well, you see, I, I, I'm sorry that you would ask such a, a, a naive question, because if you'd read the, uh, the Bible, you'd realize that the God of the Old Testament is, is, is this terrible, flawed, evil God who does all these wicked things. Yes. And that therefore shows that he is uh, he is an evil god, and he's the one who murders the Egyptians in the Red Sea, and he gets angry, and he does all these bad things, and uh, and that shows how dreadful he is. Uh, and so, from the point of view of these uh, these heretical groups, which, like I say, were a whole underground church, the Old Testament is the work of this flawed, inferior god. The complete so, Old Testament is pretty much all of it. Maybe a couple of passages from the prophets, uh-huh. just maybe. Maybe a couple of psalms, um, but all the way through the uh, the Middle Ages, you have these groups with names like the uh, the Bogomils in Eastern Europe and the Albigensians or the Cathars in France and Italy. They have their uh, their own gospels, and they believe in the gospels. They believe in some bits of the New Testament, and that for them is the whole story, and that's the story of the good God and the the God who is the maker of heaven, but definitely not of earth. And the difference between mere matter and higher spirit as represented in so many different oppositions and so many different dualities uh, is characteristic, you say, of Christian thought, particularly of um, possibly heretical Christian thought uh, across the 2,000-year history of Christianity. It, it is a heretical trend because, you know, if you ask a Catholic Christian, if you ask an Orthodox Christian, they will tell you, yes, God created matter, God created the world, created heaven and earth, of course. But for these heretics, uh, that is a, um, a false idea. And you know how false it is because the Church, uh, as we see it on earth, the official established Church, is, is itself an evil institution under Satan. And it uses material substances like uh, baptism and the Eucharist and so on. And they are all part of this materialist um, conspiracy from which we uh, are trying to break away. So this idea, which is usually called dualism, is a very, very radical uh, idea. But it takes a lot of, um, uh, of rooting out 
uh, in, in the 13th century, for instance, the uh, Catholic Church launches a full-scale crusade against it in France and Italy. And it's to fight this movement that they actually create the Inquisition, uh, yes. which is far bloodier than anything the, uh, the Spanish Inquisition would do would do later. And what, one thing which um, I use is that with the Inquisition, when it uh, raids and uh, you know destroys these people, it finds the Gospels and the alternative texts that they're using, which are these radically different views of uh, uh, of Christianity. But let me suggest a, a further hypothesis, not in disagreement with what you've said, but I wonder if this also contributes to um, deepening the historical view. I get a sense uh, when I read about spirit and matter and the inferiority of matter in relation to the purity of spirit, I get a sense of Plato, of Platonic thought and Platonic dualism. And in turn, if you ask, where did Plato get those ideas? He didn't just get them from Socrates. They may very well be ideas that come earlier from off the Indian subcontinent, in that in Hinduism and in uh, Buddhism, which is a reform, a reformation movement in relation to Hinduism, which also arises in about the fifth century BC, uh, you've got a very clear distinction between the inferiority and the transient, uh, a temporary nature of um, the material world as we know it, and an eternal uh, world of pure idea or pure form or pure purity, so to speak which persists forever and to which all uh, and out of which all reality comes and to which all reality will return the the buddhist version of all of this is that it all goes back to the brahman to a single a great spiritual force from which everything else though illusory emanates uh, these are continuities i think between uh, oriental thought and uh, later christian thought perhaps as mediated through the Greek philosophers. Is that too fanciful as I put it to you? I uh, I entirely agree with the first thing you said about uh, Plato. And in fact, there's uh, th- there's a lot of evidence of Platonic influence into uh, into Jewish thought where, yes. uh, where, where we see this. I'm going to disagree with you a bit about the Indian influence. And in fact, one thing I find which is very, which really startled me is that you can actually find some of these early Gospels going uh, migrating across Asia and actually influencing Buddhism in the first couple uh-huh. of centuries A.D., which is really surprising. And some of the, uh, the earliest lost Gospels, like the Gospel of Thomas, they're the ones who present this idea of uh, pantheism, you know, that uh, mm-hmm. God, uh, the divine, is found in everything. Uh, and it's after that that you get this strong evidence of everything having like the Buddha nature. And I can actually point to some Gospels which uh, do influence Buddhism. Also, you could, po- you could point, and I know, and you do in the book, to um, some lost, supposedly lost Gospels, which influence uh, the Quran and influence the shaping of uh, Islam. Th- that's a, a huge... Very definitely, that's a huge topic. We can maybe talk about that. Um, but this gospel I talked about, the Virgin Mary, about the Protevangelium. Yeah. If you look at the Quran's account of Jesus and Mary, and by the way, there's much more about Mary in the Quran than there is in the Christian New Testament. Yes, quite so. Yes. Every word of it is taken from this text, the Protevangelium, this this first gospel, uh, which would have made wonderful sense to Catholic or Orthodox Christians, and it's just the standard view. Of what Christians believe in the you know sixth seventh century, 
when Islam is uh, uh, coming around. <laughs> Don't ever let anyone tell you that globalization is a new thing. <laughs> Quite so. Quite so. Uh, we are uh, inevitably late for some commercials. I'm quite <laughs> so fascinated by this material. Uh, we're drawing from the new book by Philip Jenkins titled The Many Faces of Christ, The Thousand-Year Story of the Survival and Influence of the Lost Gospels. We might, after some commercials, return to the Nicene Creed and look at some of the other elements in it from which some of the other Christianities uh, would have disagreed or do continue to disagree. We'll be directly back to the conversation after this. And we return directly to Philip Jenkins, um, who is the author of many very important works of religious historical scholarship. The newest one, just in hand, is titled The Many Faces of Christ, A Thousand Years Story of the Survival and Influence of the Lost Gospels. Um, Since they've had continuing influence, why is it that so many of the uh, scholars of Christian history who have been preoccupied with the search for the historical Jesus. In uh, Schweitzer's great phrase, der Besuch dem historischen Jesu. Why is it that they all say and essentially agree with Schweitzer that the only real source we have is the three synoptic Gospels, and you can add the fourth uh, of the canonical Gospels, namely John, and um, otherwise we've got no direct contact with the story of Jesus. When, in fact, there are hundreds of other stories of Jesus, though inscribed later, they still come from a very, very early time. Why haven't they had more influence upon the attempt to reconstruct the actual history of Jesus on earth? You know, I, I would agree with uh, largely with Schweitzer on uh, on that one, because although there are so many of these Gospels, many of them don't even uh, try to be uh, historical, and they they don't they, they have, don't they don't claim any historical credit no. then. Uh, as, as far as they're concerned, they're describing uh, a Jesus who is a visionary figure. They describe him as uh, they, they see him in you know trances and visions after the uh, uh, resurrection. Insofar as they write about history, uh, they pretty much all rely on those four uh, canonical gospels. So you know, I, I believe these texts are very important, and they tell us a lot about development of religious thought, the development of Christian history. Uh, but I don't claim them, in, with maybe a couple of exceptions, um, as any real uh, throwing any new light on the um, on the earliest church. Then, the, how many how many lost gospels are there who are which are in fact available and recovered? Oh, brother. Oh my! Uh, very tough question. Um, it, under the uh, text that would be described as gospels, they, boy, they could be as many as um, say eighty or um, or a hundred. Um, but you know what? What interesting thing about uh, uh, about this? Um, I, I see that as, in a sense, an open term, and there's no reason why somebody today shouldn't write a an account of Jesus, uh, if they happen to believe it, if they want to call it a gospel, um, go ahead. Now, it so, has no so, that Robert, so that Robert Graves' book, King Jesus, can be seen as a modern gospel? Maybe. I uh, I, you know, depending on um, on intention. Yeah. So, uh, like I say, that, that, that's saying nothing at all about the historical uh, basis, uh, uh, whatever. 
Um, but th th that's why I'm trying to be careful about um, history. Um, many of the claims about early Gospels were these, you know, amazing new discoveries and uh, something about Jesus' wife or Jesus was married, whatever. Um, I don't think those are accurate historical claims. And in the case of Jesus' wife, I mean, God bless uh, the scholar Karen King, who uh, discovered that gospel of Jesus' wife. She was so responsible, and she was very careful in saying, look, I think this is an important source, but I don't, it shows what Christians believed, but it says nothing about whether Jesus was actually married himself. So, you know, g good on her for being so responsible. Well, don't we have a post-crucifixion Jesus who does continue to live on the earth and does marry? Don't we have him? in more than that one gospel? Not as, uh, not as marrying. Uh, here's, the, uh, here's the story. I mean, there, there are many, many of the Gnostic Gospels, they have accounts of uh, Jesus having conversations after his death with Mary Magdalene, who's always portrayed as being this very leading uh, apostle, yeah. with his mother, uh, Mary. But in only one account, really, there's something called the Gospel of Philip, uh, there's one line which may mean something like uh, Mary was his uh, uh, koinona, which means something like girlfriend, uh, and uh, he kissed her on the lips. And we, we read that in just one uh, gospel. But there are actually very good reasons why those Gnostics would have believed something like that, not that they have any uh, historical connection or historical claim to fact about Jesus' marital status. Well, let's look at the Gnostic Gospels so-called, and uh, I mentioned earlier that uh, they were a major work by uh, a particular historian of Christianity, uh, uh, Elaine Pagels. In fact, she once discussed that book with us on uh, the radio program uh, whenever it was published. It's probably a good 30 years ago by now. 1979. 79. Oh, what are, what's basic in the Gnostic Gospels that differs significantly from the canonical ones? Well, um, the, most of what she was referring to uh, was these alternative texts that were found at a place called Nag Hammadi in yeah. Egypt back in uh, the 1940s. Um, the most important thing is that these Gospels are not so interested in Jesus as a, um, as a historical figure. So much of what they describe uh, isn't what Jesus did in this place or that place, that he was raised from the dead. All these are uh, psychological uh, realities. Uh, they happen inside the uh, the believer that they're very uh, that they're very mystical, and this is uh, an idea that you have going way back to the start of uh, uh, Christianity that um, uh, Jesus did not going back to the Nicene Creed um, descend to earth and become man. He did not become man. Uh, Christ was this. Um, mystical reality who people imagined uh, in human form. When he was done, he uh, just uh, went back to heaven. He certainly wasn't uh, crucified. So it's a very different kind of Christ. Isn't Christ it interesting to, co to contrast that to an earlier doctrine that the Church put down, so to speak, and, and ultimately viewed as heretical? I mean, Arianism, which essentially argues Jesus was nothing but a man, but became elevated to a higher spiritual level by virtue of his purity. You know, there are like two um, extremes there. Uh, so on the, the yes. one hand, you have this Gnostic idea, but you've got even something that goes much further than um, Arius, which is uh, a group I talk a lot about, which is these um, these Jewish Christians, yeah. with names like the Ebionites, 
who basically always insisted on being faithfully Jewish. They followed the uh, Jewish ritual law, Jewish food law, and their view of Jesus was of a um, was of a great man. And uh, their gospels, their ideas uh, circulated for many centuries and had a lot of uh, impact. Although we tend to uh, uh, ignore them later centuries, so those are, if you like, the two uh, polar opposites. I wonder if the Ebionite Gospels had any influence at all upon yet another literary figure, Sholem Ash, who did uh, a very Jewish Jesus in a novel in novel form, the novel called The Nazarene. I, I don't know if he... He certainly wasn't using the, the, if you like, the original Gospels because they only survive in, uh, in odd fragments. Yeah. Um, but some of those uh, Jewish memories of uh, Jesus, um, again, there is a whole separate set of Jewish traditions um, of Jesus, which are very different from the mainstream. And they also tend to uh, represent Jesus as a more of a, a, of a political activist, as anti-Roman in a significant way. Some, uh, they vary. Some do. There's also a tradition which is extremely hostile to Jesus and portrays him as a really um, evil figure who, who deceived the people of Israel, and uh, he was a monster, he was an evil uh, magician. And there's a whole Jewish alternative gospel that produ- uh, th- th- that offers that uh, tradition. But, you know, if it sounds like I'm, I'm saying... You know, there's like a uh, uh, hundred different views of Jesus there. Well, that, that's absolutely right. It's well, like, you're saying, you, you title your book, The Many the Faces, many of, faces Christ. of Christ. Absolutely. Yes. I'm quite interested, again, we're about to pause yes. for the usual reasons. I'm quite interested in how varying, varying uh, narratives about Jesus can lead to variations on essential religious belief, and that those variations on essential religious belief can, in fact, lead ultimately to murder. I have in mind, of course, particularly the Cathar, quote, heresy or Albigensianism and the Church's persecution of the Albigensians, which generated a kind of European genocide in modern, in what is now modern France a long time ago. We might look at the scriptural uh, offenses of the Albigensians as we return and as we're looking at the Gospels that they took seriously, as we return to Philip Jenkins right after this. And we return uh, directly to Philip Jenkins. Um, I was hoping we might talk particularly about the Albigensian heresy, so-called, and about uh, the Gospel basis of their worship and of their belief. Yep. Well, the Albigensians, uh, they they have like a prehistory, which is a very strange story uh, in Southeast Europe, in um, in the Balkans, a movement emerges there called the uh, uh, the Bogomils, Mills, and they have this dualist view that the material world is ruled by an inferior god who's basically the devil, and then uh, Jesus represents the uh, uh, the good god. And there's there's a really interesting story about where that uh, comes from. They apparently have access in Southeast Europe at that point to some really ancient. Jewish scriptures that are lost everywhere else in the world, except in the Slavic world. And that's a whole story we can talk about. Anyway, they said missionaries... What's the time, what's the time period when the Bogomils arise and flourish? Around about 900 is when they start, and uh, they, they actually carry on into probably the 14 and 1500s. They're yeah. around a long, long time. Um, they send missionaries by the 11th, 12th centuries. Uh, they're very strong in the 
West. They come to be known as the Albigensians, the uh, Cathars. And from about 1210, the Catholic Church is really scared that it's going to lose the whole of France and Italy to this strange alternative church. They are essentially in the part of France that these days, we well, at the south, and uh, essentially the area that we call Provence. Yes, and much wider in southern France. And they, they show up all over the place. They show up in the Rhineland. They show up yes. in uh, Italy and so on. And there's an incredibly bloody crusade and inquisition, and we don't know the numbers. Certainly hundreds of thousands die. And one of the interesting things... By, by about, order, essentially, of the, of the Pope. Pretty much. Yeah. Um, that's right. And that, uh, by the way, that inquisition is much bloodier than the more famous Spanish Inquisition, which is mm-hmm. very small scale in comparison. We happen to have some of the Gospels, some of the texts that those believers had, and they are, you know, they're, they're mind-boggling things. We have one called uh, The Vision of Isaiah, um, and that uh, has a passage which uh, t- t- tells a story about Isaiah's ascent through the heavens, uh, where he gets to... Uh, see uh, the devil and the angels, and, and so on. That's a whole alternative gospel. And the other one that's interesting is one uh, where Jesus reveals truths to his apostle John uh, at the Last Supper, and it's called the Secret Supper. And we can trace that, and it's one of the very rare cases where we actually know exactly how the book migrated. It's about an Italian a man who was a bishop of this heretical church. He went off to Bulgaria. He brought this back. And uh, we actually have a description of his ideas, which is just mind-boggling. I mean, the way he imagined the universe, his whole mythological system. He was a man called Nazarius, and I, I write about him a lot because he's just such an amazing figure. And uh, Does, what, does what, he lay down the basic theology of the Albigensians? No, he he doesn't seem to have um, had a huge impact, but he's uh, he just represents all these strange ideas, including, I think, ideas that sound very Jewish and Kabbalistic. Uh-huh. Um, he has a bizarre mythological system about how the world is created, how the, um, uh, the crown of Adam is used to uh, create the world, how the crown of Eve is meant to create the, uh, the planets. And if you uh, track this back, a lot of what he's saying sounds very much like what you find in the Zohar, uh, the Kabbalistic text, at almost exactly the same time. So you really wonder whether Jewish and Christian mystics are talking to each other, maybe in these you know, fairly clandestine circles. But... Um, you know, it's much more sophisticated, much more complex than you'd ever imagine is happening in like a regular European village in the Middle Ages. But in basic Albigensian uh, uh, religion, what did they believe that differed, and what did they practice that differed significantly from standard Roman Catholic Christianity? They believed that the official church was a completely uh, evil, flawed, sinful body. They taught completely... uh, mythical ideas. They did not believe in the material world. Uh, they did not believe, for example, in uh, uh, eating uh, meat. Their um, their clergy were very strictly um, uh, uh, strictly celibate, and uh, they, they, their ideal death was one where they would starve themselves to death. They would just um, go away from the uh, the food of the uh, uh, the food of the world, very kind of harshly puritanical, um, but they believed in this mystical vision of a pure Jesus who is the son of 
the good God of light and not the evil God of the Old Testament. So in every possible way, they're as far from the mainstream uh, church as they possibly could be. Um, and why was why were they viewed as such a threat to standard Roman uh, Christianity? Well, if somebody is telling you that uh, your whole church, everything you do is, is of Satan, yeah. it's not just bad or flawed or not not a good idea. It's but the that, enemy, uh, yes. That, yeah, that, uh, you know, the Pope is directly serving uh, Satan, the priests are serving Satan, uh, that uh, every time uh, a Christian uses baptism, uh, it's like a tool of the devil. It, you, you can't imagine anything much more basic than that. And there's also the thought of how far it's going to uh, to spread. Is it going to conquer uh, the whole of Europe? So there's genuine um, fear about it. So they were really wiped out. Have you met Nalbachensian recently? No, I have not. But I wouldn't, well, I wouldn't be surprised But what Albigensian thought somehow persists in some other adapted form. Um, because religions never fully die. They always exert influence which shows up someplace else or in some other context, don't you think? You know, part of it may, and uh, the, the, the extreme anti-church, anti-clerical ideas uh -huh. may have an impact on later... Uh, Protestantism, on later um, Calvinism, and you know the first thing the Protestants do in the 16th century is they smash all the material images in the church because they say they're idols mm -hmm. um, but those Protestants also absolutely do not share this idea about the uh, you know the devil ruling the material world uh, all sex is evil um, and so on so I I, I don't know. I, I think this might be one example where the Albigensians vanish about as thoroughly as it's possible to vanish. As far as we can tell, the last Albigensian bishop is executed somewhere around the year 1340, and there don't appear to be any uh, followers in the West. The Bogomils last longer, and it might well be that the Bogomils then merge into um, the Muslim conquerors that you find in the Balkans. They become uh -huh. Muslim. And they certainly do have an idea of rejecting material images. I've suddenly had an, uh, had an irresponsible thought. Uh, this is, uh, <laughs> I, I to, hope not. Well, it's just for fun in a way, but still sure. I can't resist uh, voicing it. Uh, one aspect of Albigensianism that has persisted in French secular life, indeed in French political life, is anti-clericalism. Oh, uh, sure. That is, you have more anti-Catholicism and more rage against the Church through political uh, expression in France than I think any place else in the history of um, Europe over the last uh, three or four centuries at least. The anti-clerical movement was a distinguishing characteristic of certain major French political movements. Uh, sure, and if you look at the areas that are most uh, determinedly uh, Protestant in French history yeah. in the 17th, 18th century, they're often the mountains in southern France. But I do come back to saying that the anti-clericalism, a lot of the anti-church attitudes uh, survive, but not with the associated theology. That whole dualist idea, yeah. as far as I can tell, it does just vanish. It, uh, so if anyone ever tells you, uh, you know, does persecution work, you can't kill an idea, and what I always ask them is, have you met an Albigensian? Of course, you agree, I'm sure you must, uh, and I know that you're a practicing Christian yourself, uh, that um, 
Christianity has lost some of its force in in, in Christendom, uh, if you define Christendom as essentially the realm of Western Christianity, um, European Christianity. It's a common uh, running gag that if you go, if he, indeed, I think I even mentioned it on a recent radio program, if you go to... Um, uh, to Notre Dame on a Sunday morning for Mass, most of the other uh, people who are there for the same purpose are American tourists mm-hmm. rather than Parisians. Uh, that's true, but if you go a couple of miles out of the city center yeah. and you go to the places where you find the uh, uh, the African immigrants, boy, you'll find some very thriving churches out there. So maybe uh, Christianity is being reintroduced by some of those immigrants. Yes, well, a very fascinating aspect of your book is your treatment of non-European <clears throat> and indeed of non-Western Christianity. Uh, uh, what is distinctively different and with what gospel influences in, say, orthodoxy of the sort that flourishes where the Greek and Russian Orthodox churches are established? Well, so many uh, different variants there, but uh, if you take, for instance, Southeast Europe, there's there's one story which isn't at all well known in the West, but in some ways it's almost as big a story as the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, over the last hundred years or so, scholars in the, the Balkans uh, were exploring these medieval Slavic Orthodox texts, and they found these you know strange Bible passages. And when you put them together, you find that uh, they that these Orthodox scholars in the Middle Ages had access to so many ancient Jewish works and early Christian works that don't survive anywhere else in the world. And they preserved them, and we've just rediscovered those over the last few decades. Now, you know, if somebody had gone into a cave and discovered those, that would be the biggest find ever. Mm-hmm. But because they're finding them in these old books, these Slavonic Apocrypha, are this huge story, and uh, there are so many academics in the world who are rediscovering them. And you have books that are credited to, you know, Abraham and uh, Enoch, and they're absolutely rewriting the history of Second Temple Judaism. Well, what are some of the great apocryphal stories that we find there? Well, uh, the classics, um, the, probably the most important, uh, some of the writings attributed to, uh, uh, to Enoch. Um, and there were a couple of books of Enoch, and in the ancient world, those were hugely influential for both Jews and Christians. And some people say they represented a whole other school of Judaism that was as different as, say, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It was this very mystical kind of Judaism. It was focused on uh, on angels. It rejected the idea of the, uh, mm-hmm. the temple. It was a very mystical uh, uh, kind of Judaism, and it basically died out at the end of the first century, not long after the fall of the temple. Most of the texts were ceased to exist within Judaism itself, but they survived, oddly, in languages like Russian and Bulgarian, and we're just rediscovering them now. And do they have any demonstrable influence upon actual uh, orthodox uh, practice uh, and or doctrine? Uh some on Orthodox, but one of the great movements that does grow out of them is the Bogomils, because the Bogomils mm-hmm. and the Dualists are getting so many of these ideas from works like the Apocalypse of Abraham and uh, To Enoch, um, and these works which no one else in the world had, except they existed in places like, like um, Bulgaria, where, where there were these alternate Gospels, and then they almost like reconstructed this ancient, mystical Jewish uh, system in medieval Christianity. 
And scholars didn't understand this for a long time, so they just said, oh, it's just a strange heretical speculation. And no, it wasn't. It was, if you like, a rerun of um, the extreme fringe of Second Temple Judaism. It's a very odd kind of continuity. Of course, just as there are <clears throat> lost Christian Gospels, there are, I think it could be argued, a whole lost Judaisms. Um, and I think you're referring to that partly right now. Um, yep. But mystical Judaism does still persist in some modes of Talmudic study. Um, sure. And then, of course, you've got the great... Uh, the great false messiah of Shabti Tzvi. Yes. Uh, and that goes back to, uh, I guess, the 17th century, mm-hmm. um, who uh, comes and announces himself the long-awaited Jewish messiah and is believed, is believed by probably half of world Jewry, yep. so much so that there are great convulsions uh, in the Jewish world, even as far as the New World. That is, yep. um, American Jewish converts to the uh, messianic cult of the man Shabti Tzvi, or Sabati Zevi, as he right. is rendered. Uh, and uh, that's, uh, that, of course, is a great story in itself, and it's heresy uh, drawing upon other in- interpreted or reinterpreted biblical texts, because, of course, he, the appearance of Shabti Tzvi <clears throat> is now found to have been predicted uh, in various Old Testament passages, and his great, um, his great apologist or his great uh, propagandist, Nathan of Gaza, I think was his name, finds much proof of the prediction that this Messiah will arrive just around this time, just around this place uh, in the Old Testament itself. Uh, and you know, there's a wonderful uh, Isaac Bashevis singer novel about that movement called Satan in Gore. Yes, want to read exactly. a wonderful book. Exactly. You know, um, th- th- there are two, well, there are many great uh, strands in Jewish mysticism, but there are two particular. There's one called Merkava, or uh, throne mysticism, and the other is Hichalot, which is palaces. And they're the very, very influential uh, kinds of Jewish mysticism. But we now know uh, and these were around for hundreds of years, but we now know they grow out of that Enochian tradition, that lost Enochian tradition. So it kind of went underground for centuries. So it's not uh, lost Gospels, but lost scriptures, certainly. A fellow I know who <clears throat> indeed has taught in divinity schools and is kind of a post-Christian uh, scholar uh, speaks of, says that religion itself is a great art form that religious story and religious theological invention, and for that matter, even elaborations of ritual practice, are really a realm of art. And, uh, not, not pictures, but uh, the content of religion itself is artistic imagination. Oh, sure. Well, you know, the, the, the great uh, Christian declaration is, um, is that in the beginning was the word, and that yes. word... Uh, also means uh, something like reason. Um, but but uh, if you say creative imagination, you also wouldn't be uh, wouldn't be far from it. Uh, I think that's uh, so true. And um, has anything ever been more uh, productive of uh, creativity and uh, beauty than religious inspiration at its uh, at its best, whether it's uh, visual or verbal or musical? Uh, speaking um, of speaking of musical. We're about to pause for <clears throat> the usual reasons. When we come back, I want to play some portions of the Passion 
uh, of um, according to St. John by Bach, uh, and look at the story as it's given there and ask how it relates to the content of the Gospels themselves, all to follow after this. And we return to Professor Philip Jenkins, who um, is associated both with Baylor University these days and for a long time has been and continues to be associated with Penn State University and has uh, done many books of great interest in the broad realm of um, religious analysis and religious history. His newest work, just published by Basic Books, is titled The Many Faces of Christ, The Thousand-Year Story of the Survival and Influence of the Lost Gospels. Uh, Would it be a a correct statement to say that for the four canonical Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, um, there are two um, ultimate uh, uh, points of um, uh, of a conclusion or ultimate high points of the story, quite apart from the birth of Jesus, uh, then, of course, the crucifixion, and beyond that, the resurrection. Right. And uh, I want, I wonder if you could look at some of the great musical offerings of the story of Jesus as Gospels themselves. I think particularly of Bach, but it was many, it was Bach and many, many other composers of um, the Baroque period, surely, and earlier, and on to modernity, who have um, given us essentially versions of the gospel, but in music. Bach, we have um, all the great masses and oratorios, and uh, one that I particularly love, and I think most people who know Bach at all do, um, is the Passion according um, uh, to... um, uh, to John, the, or the St. John Passion, as it's more commonly uh, identified. I want to play just a brief portion of uh, the, uh, the interaction between the tenor and the baritone, which is the way in which the story unfolds until you reach choruses, which kind of elaborate around, around that portion of the story that has just uh, occurred. So here, late in the Passion according to St. John, we have uh, the crucifixion itself. And uh, it's in German, but uh, you will understand it, and you can probably translate it for us after we hear the brief portion. Here it is. Pilatus aber schrieb eine Überschrift und satzte sie auf das Kreuz und war geschrieben, Jesus von Nazareth, der Judenkönig. Diese Überschrift lasen viel Juden Denn die Städte waren nahe bei der Stadt, da Jesus gekreuziget ist. Und es war geschrieben auf hebräische, griechische und lateinische Sprache. 
Da sprachen die hohen Priester der Juden zu Pilato. So there we have it, the narrative of Jesus placed on the cross for the crucifixion with um, the writing above him, right. uh, Jesus, King of the Jews. Right, and the uh, uh, the Jews, who are the villains in this uh, story, uh, say, don't write that, but uh, but he said he was King of the Jews, and then Pilate replies, what I have written, I have written. Yes, that's their, their dialogue with, yep. with, with Pontius Pilate. Right. Uh, uh, to what degree is that drawn from uh, gospel material? That is 100% from the uh, the mainstream uh, canonical gospels. Yes. And, uh, you know, th- th- this is uh, John's version, which is uh, somewhat different from uh, the, uh, the others. And um, uh, some people, of course, you know it, obviously, but some people may not know that the word passion uh, it's from the word uh, for uh, passio, the sufferings yes. of uh, uh, of Christ. So different from uh, uh, current meaning. Um, and so that's very mainstream. Uh, of course, some of the Gospels that I talk about, uh, they do talk about the crucifixion, but they add whole things, whole elements to the story that happen after the crucifixion. Such as? One of, I suppose, the most influential Gospels is uh, something called the Gospel of Nicodemus. And, you know, most people these days, non-specialists, have never heard of it. Probably for over a thousand years, it is the best-known Gospel. It is better known than Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. And it tells the story of what Jesus does after he's crucified and before he's resurrected. And what he does is he goes down to hell, he storms and sacks hell, the fortress of hell, and liberates the souls of all the righteous dead from Adam and Moses and Abraham uh, and everyone who died before his time, and he leads them to heaven. And, you know, partly it's a wonderful story because it's uh, this massive uh, hostage rescue mission. And I could probably sit down on Google right now and turn you up, oh, 2,000 great paintings of that scene. Um, And as I say, it's a great story, but it also solves a great theological problem. Uh, Jesus opened the doors to heaven with his crucifixion. Fair enough. But what happened to all the good people who died before that time? And what Nicodemus did was um, it explained uh, Jesus is not bound by time. If Christ wants to reach back in history and liberate people who died before his time, he was going to do it. Um, and th- that is one of the, the biggest themes in uh, Christian literature, Christian art, uh, all the way through the, uh, the Middle Ages. And, uh, remind us, of, remind yeah. us of uh, one or two of the paintings that represent that scene. Boy, um, so many of them don't have names, because what they would be is they, uh, they would be on church walls on church or walls, in, yes. in church, uh, in stained glass uh, pre- uh, windows. Pre- pre- Press goes down in the, in the building, yes. Oh, Dura, you say, does it? Yeah, Dura uh, did it, uh, um, and right up until about 1500, 1550, you know, everybody did it. You couldn't move without seeing some of these yeah. great pictures. And almost overnight, they stop. I, I, and it's one of these great changes that happens around about the time of the um, of the Reformation. So the, uh, the Gospel, according to Nicodemus, was readily available to them, even though it wasn't printed in their Bibles. Where did, where did they find it? 
Um, you know, it, it, uh, it circulated very freely. It wasn't uh, included in Bibles, uh, but the text was very widely uh, copied. And if you think about it, you know, if you're living in a town and um, you, you have this book here, which is the Gospel of John, and this one says Gospel of Nicodemus, how are you supposed to know that uh, the church approves one and doesn't approve another? You know, you can't go on the Internet. Um, and, you know, this looks like a gospel, so uh, so it must be one. And uh, I, I actually write a lot about this because I, uh, I think it's a, it's a, it's a very attractive uh, idea because it's about the triumph of mercy over strict justice. Yeah. Um, and it, one of the great medieval poems just writes about this so beautifully, and it has a dialogue between these two women uh, who are mercy and truth. And truth is this very tough woman. She says, you know, these people died. They were sinners. They have to go to hell forever. And mercy says, yeah, well, you know, Christ is going to find a way. And after Christ does this, there's this gorgeous scene where mercy leads everyone in a big dance to celebrate. And that's my kind of gospel. <laughs> Has it been used in more uh, in closer to contemporary time in any way? The uh, handle uses it some in the uh, uh, in the eighteenth century um but uh, uh, but not really um but like I say all the way up to the Renaissance very very popular and just such a uh, uh, such a lovely story and of course, if you're an ordinary person in the middle ages, it had two great advantages one is it's this great story you know what what why bother to go off and watch what Bruce Willis is doing, if you can watch what uh, Christ is doing in terms of these great battles and liberating hostages. Um, but also, it gives everyone hope, which is no matter how bad you are, how much you've sinned, um, Christ is going to smash down the gates of hell and get you. Would you guess that if there has been some decay or diminution of religious belief and practice in, say, Western Europe, that is in some part a consequence of the development of the mass media and of uh, secular entertainments of the sort that you've just referred to? Well, you know, that, that does work well in terms of chronology because it really happens in the 1960s. Uh -huh. um, I, I don't know if there, is a, um, if, if there is a direct link. Certainly there is a big change in progress in the, um, in the 60s and 70s. Now, I'm prepared to blame TV for almost anything, <laughs> but I, I, I can't give you like a, um, a direct uh, link there. What I always say is, you know, it's not so much declining as changing. So people pretty much yeah. stop going to confession, they stop going to church, but millions and millions of people in Europe still go on pilgrimages. Yes, but um, there are people of different orders. They tend to be, um, well, I don't know. I, should, I shouldn't pontificate on that. Um, pontificate, in fact, is a word. Pontificate means acting like a pope. So yes. There you go. But uh, who does go on, on pilgrimages these days? Um, you would be amazed. Um, people of all sorts of different backgrounds. Uh, if you go to a European pilgrimage center, you'll see the really young You'll see millennials, you'll see people in their 20s, you'll see a great many um, black people and white people, you'll see a great many Asians, uh -huh. um, you, you will see, you know, white, um, white Europeans. Um, I, I, I saw some amazing figure that in uh, uh, Poland, something like a quarter of the population goes on pilgrimage uh, once a year. Probably to Czestakowa. 
Um, they go all over. They go to Spain. They go to England. Oh, I see. France. Beyond um, the... Now, obviously, you know, they, they love to go in Poland itself. Yeah. But um, th- th- there's a lot more religion about. It's really the kind of institutional church stuff which has uh, uh, declined. Um, let me play another portion of uh, the crucifixion scene uh, from uh, Bach's uh, Passion sure. uh, and uh, get your reaction and your further thought about it as it relates to uh, the gospel uh, that it's drawn from, but as it is possibly worked through in other terms in other gospels. to the last words of Jesus as he's hanging right. on the cross he says to his mother Zea das ist deine Sohn here look woman here is your son right and uh, and the uh, idea is that he entrusts uh, Mary to the care of uh, of John and ever after Mary goes and lives in the uh, yes. in, in John's house and I'm so grateful to you for uh, opening the way to discussing another great gospel tradition one of the most popular in the Middle Ages, which is there's a whole cycle in the Middle Ages of Gospels about the Virgin Mary. Catholic Orthodox believers believed in the Virgin Mary, and they wrote stories about her. And the more they wrote about her, the more they presented her life and death as an echo, a mirror of that of Christ. So uh, there were these Gospels that portrayed Mary's last days and death almost exactly according to those of uh, of Jesus. We know from what you just played that she was living in John's house. All the Apostles gathered, and uh, they witnessed her passing from this world, not a death, uh, going asleep. Um, and those Gospels, again, shaped literally thousands of icons and religious paintings including some that have got the, the most gorgeous religious image uh, in Eastern Europe, which shows Mary going to sleep, Mary dying, and Jesus is standing by her. And Jesus is holding a newborn baby girl who represents his mother's soul. Yeah. A lovely But that sort of image. thing by the Protestants has been condemned as, to use their word, Mariolatry, Mary worship of Mary. You know, uh, you, you're absolutely right. Um, and some of it, I mean, just does go so far. And some of it uh, really does make Mary uh, a second Christ, which yeah. at least in Christianity is just absolutely, uh, you know, unacceptable. Um, but equally, I think many Protestants in recent years have maybe come to think that they need to discover a bit more about Mary. They can't just uh, kind of rule her entirely out of the picture. But some of these Mar- uh, Marian Gospels, are so influential, and they shape art 
boy, right up into the modern times. Um, ideas like the, the Assumption of Mary, for example, um, these are ideas that are actually required belief if you're a Catholic, and they're based one, one great, on these Gospels. One great theme of um, Renaissance painting is the Annunciation. Right. Um, where do we find that? Is it in all of four of the canonical Gospels? No, um, it. I think it, not. Yes. No, uh, it, uh, Matthew and Luke are the two that uh, talk about the uh, the, uh, the birth of uh, uh, the birth of Jesus. In fact, Mark and uh, John say nothing whatever. Uh, Luke is the big one that refers to uh, uh, to Mary, and. Um, you know, it's almost a process like in the modern world, and I'm, I'm not trying to be disrespectful when I say this, it's almost like fan fiction. People watch a series on TV, and they want to write something that tells more of the story, more of the story. Yeah. And uh, so they know this about Mary, and so they write these little expanded larger Gospels where Mary's mother gets an enunciation of the birth of Mary. Uh-huh. And it just, you know, expands from there. Uh, we are about to pause uh, for, I fear, the usual reasons. Or I shouldn't fear that. I should welcome it, I, I'm sure. Um, but um, it is time first for me to invite response from our listeners. Uh, you can phone in or you can email in. If you want to call with a question to Philip Jenkins, the phone number is 847-475-1590. 847-475-1590. And if you'd rather email to us, the email is milt, yes, that is M-I-L-T, milt at 1590wcgo.com. Milt at 1590wcgo.com. Get your messages with a question or thought or story or what have you uh, in as soon as you can. We'll be with you after this. And returning directly uh, to Philip Jenkins, before we uh, begin to read some of the email that's come in, uh, you said earlier that uh, Mary appears more in the Quran than she does actually in the New Testament. Right. Let's let's talk about, in general, the Christian story as it somehow seeps into or otherwise gets or reorganized within uh, Islam itself. Right. You know, it depends how you think of uh, the Christian story. If you open the uh, Quran... Uh, then you will find a great many uh, figures that uh, Christians know from the Bible, both the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, um, and the New Testament. Well, of course, we start with Abraham. We, uh, well, we start with Adam. Adam was the first Muslim. Don't, uh, yes. don't, don't, don't forget. But all the, the figures... But these are known as the Abrahamic faiths, the three right, religions, yes. Right. Um, but all those accounts uh, of Adam, Abraham, Moses, Jesus, are all read in the Quran through alternative scriptures through apocryphal scriptures and not in the versions that we uh, we know them in the canonical bible for instance in the canonical bible in the hebrew bible we read about a character called melchizedek uh plays a fairly small role in the time of abraham um very very important in the quran under the name of elhidr uh, uh, the green one um, and uh, enormously important character because he's mentioned so much in some of these uh, non-canonical scriptures. So when the Quran is put together, it's at a time when these lost gospels and lost scriptures and apocrypha are running rampant in um, in, in Arabia. 
Uh, Jesus is so important in Islam. Uh, when the last day comes in the Islamic view, the prophet who will appear to usher in the last day is not Muhammad, uh, it is Jesus. Um, around the uh, the Muslim world, many, uh, many Muslims, particularly women, um, look to Mary uh, as a figure who will uh, help them and grant them health. Uh, the variant of Islam that flourishes in Syria, mm. and of which Saddam Assad is a practitioner, I forget what it's, uh, the Alawites. Yes. Uh, they uh, make even more of Mary, don't they? In... Um, they, they do, and there, there are a lot of uh, versions of um, um, Islam in uh, Syria and uh, uh, Lebanon, and at least some of them, like the Druze, uh, probably draw on old Gnostic uh, ideas. Yes. Uh, uh, in, including reincarnation. <laughs> a term that's commonly used in religious scholarship, uh, but we haven't actually used it today, is um, the uh, term for sort of the borrowing of elements and the fusing into new constructions of old elements. And it's called syncretism as a right. process. And you really are saying that um, Christianity and Judaism and Islam are syncretically intertwined. Sure, in terms of the way they uh, they, they uh, operate, and you know, uh, some people are, are shocked by that idea because it suggests they're not pure faiths. But uh, you know, people live in the real world; they uh, uh, they grow from what has uh, happened uh, before. Uh, if you look at Islam, for instance, it grows in a world that is mainly Christian, and it takes so many ideas. The Muslim yeah. idea of Ramadan is taken from the Christian idea of um, of Lent. Um, the uh, the Muslim idea of uh, prostration during prayer is taken from what Christian monks would have done in the 7th and 8th centuries. And initially, Muslims did not have much time for that idea at all, but they certainly did it. Um, so obviously, when you live next to somebody, you tend to borrow from and share their uh, their ideas. You know, nothing, uh, nothing wrong with that. Christians certainly borrowed plenty of things as they went along. You, you made a reference earlier to the possible influence of the, Bogol, the Bogomil variant of Christianity upon Islam. And of course, that would have happened by virtue of the Islamic invasion of what um, of Eastern Europe, essentially of the Balkans. Uh, which right. There are some very interesting uh, Sufi orders, mystical orders that yes. you get in the Balkans. And those orders tend to be quite kind of secretive about what they believe, but uh, probably some of them are concealing, or I, I don't want to say concealing, that makes it sound sinister. Um, they have at their heart some really old ideas. But if, if you look at the, as I say, the origins of, um, of Islam, there's a lot of evidence of the sharing of old Christian scriptures. Uh -huh. and, um, and many people think that early Islam draws from surviving old Jewish Christian texts. Oh, of course, text. yes. Um, yeah. You know, uh, w w one of the descriptions of um, Jesus in the Quran uh, describes the crucifixion as a myth or an illusion. In other words, those evil people, they thought they crucified Jesus, but they never did. And that's an ancient idea that the Orthodox, the mainstream church calls heresy. Um, but you find it all over the place, and you find it in a lot of these uh, um, alternative Gospels. Uh, staying with the Christian-Muslim connection, here is an email from yep. John, who is listening to us in Memphis, Tennessee. He's one of our online listeners, <clears throat> and he says, I find it utterly fascinating that there is 
more in the Quran on Mary than in the Bible. Perhaps it would go a long way to soothing the red-hot misunderstandings between the two faiths if this were more often expressed. What else might we find interesting in terms of evidence or accounts of Jesus beyond the Bible? Um, you know, in, in Egypt, just this last year, it's been very interesting. The, um, the the Egyptian government, as you know, overthrew the old Muslim Brotherhood, which they regarded as mm-hmm. being very intolerant. And over the past couple of years, they've tried to build up the Virgin Mary as the common heritage of all Egyptians. And ordinary Egyptians really get into this big time, because if you're Muslim, you have you know a lot of sympathy for Mary. And this past year, there's been a big custom where Muslims go to their Christian neighbors and um, wish them well for the Assumption, the Feast of the Assumption in August. Now, God bless them, they make a little mistake, and they say, you know, we give you blessings on the birthday of Mary, and they say, well, it's not the birthday, it's the Assumption, but thank you very much anyway. Uh-huh. Um, and Mary provides that kind of uh, focus of unity. And um, Egypt has seen some of the greatest claims of visions of the Virgin Mary, and it's Muslims who turn out in their millions uh, to uh, uh, to see these uh, uh, to see these things. Um, the, the other stories that you get in the um, in the Quran that are taken entirely from alternative gospels are some of the many many stories about Jesus' childhood. Now remember, I talked about fan fiction. You know, you want to talk about somebody, yeah. so you make up stories about mm-hmm. their childhood. And there are these great stories about the infancy. Gospels about Jesus, and the, the most famous probably is Jesus is a toddler. It's on the Sabbath, and he's uh, making birds out of clay uh, by the river. And Joseph comes along and says, "You're not uh, working on the Sabbath, are you?" And Jesus touches these clay birds; they spring into life and fly away. And Jesus says, "Nope, not working." And it, you know, it's a lovely story, and that story's in the Quran. Where, where do you encounter the mean Jesus? who as a child kills another child. Uh, you know, you find that in other variants of those same infancy Gospels. Yeah. And some of, uh, you know, um, that's one of the really nice ones about the, uh, the birds. But some of them, Jesus is depicted in terms of being so um, absolutely powerful. He is ruthless. Uh, somebody bumps into him and, um, and then drops down dead. And they're horrendous, horrendous uh, stories. Now, fortunately, as I say, the Quran actually takes the good stories. Um, but these infancy Gospels, again, they feature all the way through the Middle Ages. For a thousand years, people know, uh, know all about these stories. Yeah. They portray them in, um, in art. Um, and, you know, the, the, the closest parallel I find to some of these stories um, are in old... Uh, Oh, basically old horror films about monstrous children and episodes of the Twilight <laughs> Zone and so on. <laughs> well, there may be only 17 or is it 12 or is it 30 separate plots uh, and uh, right. they keep recurring. And that Absolutely. certainly is one of them, is it not? Yep. Um, but they're so focused on saying how incredibly powerful Jesus is um, yeah. that they lose so much of the, uh, the other stuff. And can I just something which may be kind of counterintuitive. Some of those stories we can date, and they go back probably to the 140s and 150s, and people were telling those stories before most of the Gnostic Gospels were written. Uh Um, So, 
many of the Gnostic Gospels, Gospel of Judas probably, are, are like 3rd century. They're probably written 100, 150 years after those stories about Jesus' childhood, those stories about Mary's childhood. So people are interested in Jesus' immediate family before they get into those mystical speculations that have been so uh, attracted so much attention in recent years. But the canonical Gospels have already been written. They're, they've yeah. right from about, what, what is it, 70 A.D. to uh, 100 A.D. or thereabouts. Uh, yeah, that, that's a good range, yeah. Yeah. Um, here is another email of considerable interest. Uh, what does Mr. Jenkins think of the many attempts of authors like Reza Aslan mm-hmm. to discount the validity of Jesus as a living historical figure? Do these Gospels offer anything in the way of proving the existence of Jesus having walked this earth? Or are they more accurately described as fanciful attempts to uphold and bolster the faith? Okay. You know, um, I have a lot of admiration for Reza Aslan's work. I think it's a little bit of a... Um, He's this Muslim of... fellow who's written, um, essentially, yeah. a his- history of Jesus. Right. And he doesn't uh, discount Jesus' existence. Um, what he does is he really strongly emphasizes the uh, political nature of Jesus. He sees him much more as a political activist, a political uh, rebel. So he, it's not that he's um, uh, saying that he didn't exist. Um, I, you know, I, I admire Risa Aslan, but I disagree with him on that. I, I, I put a lot more emphasis on the uh, stories that you find in the um, uh, in the New Testament. Uh, you know, politics are one small part of the story, but there's a much bigger story there. You know, I respect the guy, but I disagree with but him. I've, I've not read Aslan's book, though. Yeah, I've Della, met, met well. him once. But uh, does he argue that Jesus may never have lived at all, or does he merely no. say, the, no. so in that our... our um, Correspondent has it wrong. He's not. Well, uh, he's not or, denying the existence of right. Jesus as an historical figure. Right. Uh, certainly not. Uh, as in, uh, Senator, the book is called um, Zealot. Now, the, you know, there certainly are people who uh, who will um, claim that uh, that Jesus never existed. I, I, you know, I honestly have no time for that uh, that argument. No, no, you, of course you not. C- you can believe anything you want in terms of Jesus being any sort of awful person, uh, but but. You know, his existence is as documented as you can possibly get. Um, do, do the alternative Gospels add much in the way of history, historicity? Um, I really don't think they do, and they're not trying to. Um, they are superb for the historicity of later periods. So something written in 500 AD, for instance, tells us a ton about the world as it was in 500. But it doesn't tell us things uh, that are happening in Jesus' time. They uh, might tell us about relations between Christians and Jews. They might tell us about ideas about gender or sexuality. But they can't tell us anything about uh, uh, Jesus uh, um, himself. And I'd be very surprised if we ever found a new text or a new gospel which radically reshaped our basic ideas of the r- real historical Jesus. Well, we had some attempt at that when, um, <clears throat> I forget their names, you know them, I'm sure, turned up did a book about the the bone box marked uh, uh, that it was that they contained the bones of the brother of Jesus. Yes, and uh, I and anything I'd say about that is going to come out sounding very disrespectful. Yes. So I just maintain a polite. Well, silence. it was discounted after a while by the scholars, yeah. but it, not it, not originally. It's it's controversial, but uh, I I have no time for the idea. Right. I, I think that I'm sorry. I, I, no. <laughs> 
We're about to pause for a last quick round of commercials and then right back to Philip Jenkins. And we've got room for more phone calls, 847-475-1590, and more email, uh, milt at 1590wcgo.com. We return after this. And returning to Philip Jenkins here, uh, Philip is uh, yet another email uh, from Gavin in Maywood. Uh, Can Jenkins give a quick rundown on how we came to accept the four accepted Gospels? It seems that the common threads are, one, virgin birth, two, Christ's divinity, three, crucifixion, four, resurrection. Is that the gist of it? Were there uh, extra-canonical Gospels excluded because they often portray Jesus as a man and absent one or more of those commonalities? Um, interesting yeah. question. Interesting question. I'm going to disagree with one of the uh, the assumptions there. There are four Gospels, uh, canonical Gospels. Two of them uh, actually say nothing about the birth of yes. um, of Jesus, um, uh, Mark and John. Um, the, the short answer is at a very, very early point in the uh, Church's history, certainly in the mid-2nd century, um, they have declared that those four Gospels are the real uh, ones. Um, you know, it, it, it's not, like as Dan Brown suggests, way off in the uh, 4th century, and there are all these Gospels around, and they happen to sit down and say, we'll take these four. Already in the um, 2nd century, about 140, um, people start saying, well, like, there's uh, four winds, there's four directions, there's four Gospels. Um, but they, they have a very good grounds for that. It's not just the doctrines that are in them. It's the fact that they are by far the earliest um, that we can uh, that we can date, uh, therefore, that really do have, if you like, a plausible historical setting. And none of the others are vaguely close. If you look, for instance, at the uh, you know, Protevangelium, which is this one about uh, Mary, that's probably written about 160 and 170. And what's interesting is all the alternative Gospels, all the other Gospels, assume the existence of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So even the Gospel of Thomas, for instance, which is often cited as being this fifth Gospel, um, in fact, uh, that could not have been written if the other Gospels had not already have been in existence to be drawn on. So I, I think the four Gospels are have the prestige they do because they have a claim to historicity which is so far above any, any competitors. What, what do you make of that pe- pe- peculiar... Uh, special gospel, the Gospel of Judas. Oh, the Gospel of Judas is a uh, it's a very late one. Um, it uh, it again uh, draws on a long, long tradition of uh, of other gospels. It claims absolutely no historical uh, tr- uh, tradition, and you know it's not as odd as some people claim because early on. Um, when people were publicizing it, they were presenting uh, Judas as playing this kind of special historical role in Jesus' life and so on. Well, um, they portray him as appointed by Jesus to betray him to the Romans. Right, exactly. But then when you look at the translation better, it's very clear that that interpretation is not right. Uh-huh. That, Jesus is a demon- uh, that uh, Judas is a demonic figure. Still. Right. And, you know, it, it's interesting. We began this conversation by talking about uh, Robert Graves' uh, yes. book, King Jesus. And the whole point of that book, if you recall, and it's probably been a good number of years since you read it, like I many, read it. Many years, yes. 
is that Jesus, in that book, written in 1946, appoints Judas to be the one who will cause his crucifixion and cause the end of the world. So in other words, long, long before anyone had rediscovered Judas, uh, Judas' gospel so-called, these ideas were already very, very well known. So, um, you know, it's an interesting text. If you have a great scholarly uh, uh, interest in those early texts and the early church, it's absolutely wonderful. Does it tell us anything at all new or surprising about the life of Jesus or the, uh, the early church? Nah. Now, I want to read a comment about your book by Leslie Hazelton, um, who is the author of The First Muslim, The Story of Muhammad. And yep. she says, Be prepared to be shocked and or delighted. Jenkins uncovers a far more colorful mosaic of Christian belief through the centuries than, well, than we've been led to believe apocryphal writings thought lost or repressed in the West were and still are alive and cherished elsewhere and have fed back into Western consciousness with a vibrancy that may surprise you. I think that's an excellent and quite uh, correct judgment of this vigorously written and wonderfully informative book. Uh, That book if you haven't caught on yet, that is titled The Many Faces of Christ, The Thousand-Year Story of the Survival and Influence of the Lost Gospels by our special guest for the day, Philip Jenkins. And the book is published by Basic Books. We've got time for a few more of the emails that have come in. Here then is the next. Which lost gospel is the best reading from a quality point of view? Which one is the most well-written? Oh, brother. Well, you know, it uh, it depends what your um, what you're looking what, for. What yeah. your standards are, what your interests are. You know, um, Nicodemus is such an interesting one, uh, and it comes in uh, it comes in two halves. The se- uh, the second half of it is the account of Christ descending to uh, to hell, and that is an absolutely uh, wonderful account with you know a lot of dramatic uh, dialogue and uh, some really mind boggling. Um, scenes. Right up, by the way, to the the moment where you have all the souls in hell and the the devil in hell, and they know that um, Christ is near, and then suddenly you get this dramatic line, lift up your heads, O gates, the king will come in, which is a line from the Psalms. Mm -hmm. Um, And probably through the Middle Ages, that was the best known saying of Christ, far more than do unto others. That's an amazing one. Um, Something like the uh, the, uh, Gospel of Thomas is wonderful in terms of expressing these uh, uh, mystical versions of Christianity, these uh, images of uh, Jesus being everywhere, you know, uh, cut into the wood and I am there, lift the rock and um, I am there. Uh, absolutely beautiful images. But, but there, are, um, there, there are so many. Uh, if you're interested in images of uh, the um, uh, or women's role in uh, the, the divine scheme and some of the accounts of the uh, the, the death of uh, Mary. But Gospel of Nicodemus, Gospel of Thomas, and uh, maybe the um, the oddest of all, uh, which is one we haven't talked about, which is the Gospel of Barnabas, which is one that was, uh, shall we say, doctored or changed over the centuries by Muslims to make it into a Muslim text. But if you dig into it, you have this amazing account of Jesus from a very early Christian gospel, right up to the point where, as he's about to be crucified, Jesus does virtually a conjuring trick, and everything that happens to him thereafter, including the crucifixion, actually happens to Judas. 
Jude just keeps trying to scream, it's not really me. Yes. And, you know, it, it's almost something that cries out to be filmed. Is, the, is there a, um, uh, a single volume that reproduces all or most of the Lost Gospels? Uh, there are a number of them. There, there are several attempts, but, you know, I, I, I will give you one, uh, uh, one hint. If you are not interested in a scholarly edition with, like, all the original text and so on, you can get virtually all of them full text on the Internet. Mm. Um, so uh, I, I, at the risk of uh, doing harm to publishers, uh, I, I would encourage people, if you're interested in something like the Gospel of Thomas, um, if you go online, you'll find these. And I'll, I'll just refer to two sites which are so good. And uh, early Christian writings, one word, mm -hmm. and early Jewish writings, one word. Yeah. And if you look at those two, each of them include dozens and dozens of alternative texts. You click onto one, and it'll give you multiple versions of them. It'll give you scholarly commentary. And, uh, you know, if you have a real prejudice in terms of wanting to spend money on a book, go ahead. But personally, I don't. Um, another email coming up. If the Church Fathers were meeting today, mm -hmm. which of those lost Gospels might stand the best chance of being included in the New Testament? The short story, uh, and some people have suggested this, would definitely be the, uh, the Gospel of Thomas, um, which is certainly an early Gospel. Um, it's probably mm, 40 years later than the canonical Gospels, um, but it, you know, it certainly includes a lot of very early, um, early material. Um, Does it add I, anything to the story that we don't find in the canonical Gospels? I would say not, and some of the stuff it does add is not stuff we want, uh -huh. um, because some of them, it, it's very anti-female. So, for example, it's got these lines about, you know, can women be saved? And it's, uh, Jesus says, well, you know, yes, absolutely they can. Every woman who makes herself a man can be saved. And you think, well, I, I don't know about this. Huh. So, um, that, so... But uh, the Gospel of Thomas would be by far the uh, the best contender. Um, I hope you'll uh, allow me to uh, pose a question that's a touch personal. Uh, but uh, you are um, a um, you are a serious Christian yourself in your own belief. Is that true? Right. Well, what has all of this kind of scholarship that you've done, and you've done a vast amount of it? The new book is only the latest in a long series of such works. What has it done to affect, organize, reorganize your own faith? I think it's done two things. Um, it's taught me the amazing diversity of the Christian tradition. And, you know, just when you think you've, you've got a handle on the Western tradition, then you realize that the, the Eastern tradition, the African tradition, and you realize that there's, there are just so many uh, different views. And what you have to do is try and decide what is, if you like, the core of that, and uh, what is the core of the faith. Um, and what I do is I focus on something like the Apostles' Creed, which is even simpler than the Nicene Creed. Mm -hmm. and I, I say, well, okay, that's the core, and everything else is elaboration. Everything else is adapting to particular cultures. And that doesn't mean it's bad, but never believe that it's some sort of absolute truth. Never believe, for instance, that there's one kind of Christian music or Christian architecture that it is so 
very diverse, and anything which does present that very simple form is an impoverishment of um, of, of the um, of the faith. And um, it also tells me that if I had uh, another sixty or seventy years of life, which I uh, I certainly don't, I'd still only be starting to scratch the surface of what is uh, what is available. So it's really awe and delight at the uh, sheer range of um, of uh, what is out there. And that also raises kind of real issues about the whole idea of fundamentalism. If you're a fundamentalist, you believe that some scriptural text is absolutely authoritative. But what you soon learn is um, different churches are equally valid, and they have different ideas of what the Bible is. They have more books, they have fewer books. So that does raise many problems about any kind of fundamentalism. Well, Philip, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been of great value uh, to me and I think to our listeners. We're going to pause uh, shortly um, after I make clear to all who are listening that the book that we've been drawing from by Philip Jenkins is titled uh, The Many Faces of Christ, The Thousand-Year Story of the Survival and Influence of the Lost Gospels, and that is published by Basic Books. And I do so much appreciate you're joining us. We're going to end with a, a sort of a calming and solacing mu- musical interval, which I think is just about appropriate. Not from Bach, in this case, one of the other great bees, Beethoven, but this will be a transition to what follows later on. Or rather, Mozart, I'm told, is what we've got available. But again, Philip, thank you very much. It's been a delight for me. Thank you very much.
Thank you.